311 publications altogether. And 20 publications in 2010, 11 in 2011, and uh, 10 papers so far this year. And those are in papers like, those are in journals like Nature and PNAS and Journal of Molecular Biology. And um, some of us um, would have difficult, that's, that's more than once a month. Um, that's like one every three weeks. And uh, some of us would have trouble reading, especially papers in structural virology uh, at that kind of a rate. So Jack, I'm just so um, impressed with, uh, well, everybody has got to be with respect to your role as a, leader, as a leader in the field of virology, a worldwide leader in the field of virology. I've had the privilege of introducing Jack um, three or four different times and to different audiences. And every time I, I, I um, walk away from, um, from Jack's talk, uh, just scratching in my head in amazement with his uh, ability to communicate to different audiences uh, so effectively. And so we are really, really privileged to have uh, Jack here with us today. He's um, not only a highly, highly gifted scientist, the world leading scientist in the field of virology, but he's also uh, heavily involved in his own church in North County here in the San Diego area and a wonderful example to me personally in terms of living the Christian life in the world of science. Uh, Jack Johnson. So others here. Um, first of all, I really appreciate the opportunity to be here this morning and to uh, um, talk about what I do. And uh, I don't always have an opportunity to talk about my faith as part of my scientific presentation. So this is a, a, a real treat for me. But um, it might be useful just to give a little bit of background. Um, so I was raised in Chicago, and uh, I, I had absolutely incredibly wonderful parents. They were. Uh, um, just super people, both very, very active in the church. Um, in high school, I was not particularly motivated except by sports. Uh, and then I went to Carthage College, a liberal arts school. I had to take a chemistry course because it's a liberal arts college. I wanted to get a degree in business. And then that went off track, and I became really, really excited about chemistry. And uh, um, that changed everything. And I've been doing this now for over 50 years and uh, have really enjoyed it. So uh, just a summary of uh, where I've been. And uh, I had a fantastic time at Purdue University. And then in 1995, actually in 93, I came out here on sabbatical uh, to the Scripps Research Institute. And uh, two years later, I moved here. So San Diego is a rather magnetic uh, place to be. Um, so I'm a lifelong Christian. Uh, I, as uh, Daryl said, I'm active at uh, Calvary Lutheran Church in Solano Beach. Um, lots of different uh, wonderful things going on in there. And uh, I really do believe that uh, my work is my worship uh, five days a week, six days a week, sometimes seven days a week. Uh, and uh, uh, it's, it's really a privilege to do this. And then I, my avocation is actually astronomy and cosmology. So my wife says, you live your days at the nanoscale and your 
nights at the light year scale, and you're never quite with us. So anyway, um, so be it. But um, anyway, this, the whole idea of communication is a critical part of my life because uh, in the final analysis, I'm just a salesman. And if I can't sell what I do, either for its usefulness or its sheer inspiration, then I can't do it. So uh, uh, I have to communicate uh, to funding agencies, philanthropists, and uh, to you. So viruses. Um, I love these little things because uh, they're something I can get my arms around. I was Just last week, I was at a meeting in Durham, England uh, on the combination of uh, mathematics and uh, biology. And uh, there were a lot of neurobiologists there. And uh, I'm, I could never do neurobiology. Viruses are something I can get my arms around. And uh, uh, really, the, the idea of what I do is to try to to try to be able to explain biology in terms of uh, chemistry and physics. And uh, so viruses give us that possibility. And viruses are very, very small. This is, uh, this is the bacteria, the size of a bacterium E. coli that uh, most of us have heard about in one way or another. Um, and uh, poliovirus is, you can't even hardly see it up here. It's, it's just about 30 nanometers in, in size. Here's a human red blood cell. So viruses are incredibly tiny. And the viruses that uh, I want to talk about today are, are bacteriophage. And bacteriophage infect bacteria. Uh, but they're also uh, quite amazing uh, molecular machines. And uh, um, one of the things that I really appreciate about viruses is their geometry. Because they all, all of the simple viruses and not so simple viruses, this is herpes simplex virus, so this is a this is 100 nanometers uh, in dimension. But uh, they all have icosahedral symmetry. So uh, the icosahedron is uh, an object that has what we call 60 asymmetric units. And uh, if you put this, uh, if each one of these little trapezoids represents a protein, they will associate with each other to form this closed shell. And long before Plato discovered the platonic solids, uh, nature was using them to build structures of viruses. And the reason that it uses the icosahedron is because of genetic economy. If you take genetic information and you make a protein that looks like one of these trapezoids, uh, you can just make that same protein over and over again. And then those proteins assemble spontaneously and form a particle that contains the genome for the virus inside. So the, the icosahedron is a genetically economic way to do things. And um, we, we, when we look at the surfaces of viruses, and I'm a, I'm a big model guy, because uh, in order for me to understand things, I need to have models in hand. But um, these, these proteins have to be able to form uh, both pentameric interactions and hexameric interactions. And they're really very similar to each other. There's just a small change that takes place. And these are actually made with Velcro. Uh, and I talked to one of my colleagues at Scripps. I mean, they're held together with Velcro. And, and he said, well, you know, we should be able to do this with magnets. And uh, he built these little um, plastic pieces with magnets in the right places. And with that, 
um, he's been able to uh, make self-assembling systems that are uh, inside that, that we can do use in a So that's why I like viruses, because we can make a little model and we can make them assemble in a, in a plastic container. Um, so the other part about viruses that I really like is this what I call maturation, because it turns out that when viruses assemble, they're not infectious. Uh, and this happens for a couple of reasons. First of all, it's not very productive for a virus to make an infectious virus inside of a cell that's already been infected. Uh, it would be not productive. So the virus actually has a safety switch that prevents it from being infectious until it gets out of the cell. The other thing that is really astonishing about viruses is that most biological interactions are what I call very soft. They can't be too hard or they get trapped into, into uh, uh, misaligned features. So by assembling in a very, very soft manner, they then encode a program in their capsids that take them from this soft, easily disassembled state into a very robust state that can live in sewage systems and so forth and so on, which is where these bacteriophage hang out. So um, we're really interested in understanding how this maturation program works. And viruses that infect humans have maturation programs. HIV has a very famous maturation program because some of you have heard about protease inhibitors that stop HIV. Well, what it stops is maturation because these proteases that are encoded by the virus have to, uh, have to uh, um, cleave the proteins that allow it to go through this maturation process and become infectious. Things like papillomavirus originally assemble in this very chaotic manner, and then they gain a tremendous amount of stability as they go through this program. So that's what we're interested in. And we use a whole lot of different biophysical methods to look at this, and it's, it's extremely entertaining uh, in addition to uh, informative. But uh, these are... These are technologies that uh, have all been advancing at very, very rapid rates over the years. So I'm, I'm going to talk to you about two viruses. I'm going to talk to you about one called P22 that infects Salmonella. It's actually used to kill Salmonella on, uh, uh, on fruits and vegetables. And then another one called uh, HK97. And you can see they have different kinds of tails, but their, their shells are about 65 nanometers um, in, in dimension, and uh, they, they carry a pretty good load of genomic information. They have about 40,000 base pairs of genes, uh, but we're interested in these particles. Now, uh, the theme of this is communication and, and so forth, and one of my colleagues put together a, a very uh, entertaining movie that actually is based on a lot of uh, scientific data about how this T4 bacteriophage actually infects. 
and uh, here we see the particle coming down, and it's going to attach itself to the surface of a bacterium through uh, polysaccharides. And uh, the legs go down, and now, just like landing on the moon, uh, there's a, a, a reorganization of the uh, lower plate, and then the entire shell undergoes a huge change, drills right through the surface of the, of the virus, I mean of the cell, and then uh, enzymes dissolve the inner membrane and DNA can now flow into the cell. So uh, this is the final product. I want to talk about how it gets to that state. And I should say that virtually everything that is in this movie has been understood at the chemical level uh, as things go along. So here's our bacteriophage. Uh, about an hour after the DNA gets delivered, there's about 200 virus particles in the cell. The cell bursts, and the particles go off and infect other cells. So um, P22, I want to first talk about this tail machine, because that's a a really interesting part. It, it's the part that allows the virus to deliver its DNA into the cell. And we use a technique called electron microscopy. And uh, um, one of the amazing things about electron microscopy is when you look at the raw images, you say, well, that is a field of junk. Uh, there's nothing there. I don't see anything except these little specks. However, with the, with the world of uh, computational uh, reorganization and, and putting things together from those, we can get a very detailed picture of uh, what these tail machines look like. And we can then color code the different gene products that are in the tail machines. These are actually, en in blue, are enzymes that uh, uh, cut through the uh, outer uh, glyco uh, proteoglycan region that allows the virus to get so. so to get to the cell. So the, the particle is up here, uh, so we're just looking at the part that goes down and into the cell. And as I said, we can see each of the different gene products that are here. All of everything colored the same color is the same gene product. So the virus is using the same gene products over and over again. Again, gen genetic economy. Uh, and this is the uh, portal. This is what attaches to the virus, uh, attaches to the particle. This is the amount of detail that we can get with uh, cryo-electron microscopy. Now, there was another virus that, where this protein was solved by X-ray crystallography, and then we could take that structure and we could fit it nicely into our structure, making a few adjustments to get things to fit properly. But now we know where every atom is located in these in this, uh, in this protein, and then 12 of those proteins come together to form that portal. This is the enzyme. Again, a crystal structure was done. We could fit that into our cryo-EM density. So we take these individual pieces, and we can put them all together, and we can look at how everybody interacts with each other. So here's that portal. We know where all the atoms are for that. This is an adapter. Uh, it's called GP4. There's 12 copies of that. This is a second adapter called GP10, and there's six copies of that. And now we can start to add the uh, closure protein. This is called GP26. It keeps the DNA from coming out of the virus particle. And now we can add these enzymes. So we know where every atom is located in this, and we can talk about the chemistry of this system. So I've been describing to you this portal region, but 
Now let's take a look at the rest of this assembly process. So in green are what we call scaffolding proteins. Just like scaffolding that we use in uh, uh, building a building, they guide the assembly, and then once it's assembled, they disappear, just like scaffolding disappears. So these are intermediate. And then the blue is the capsid protein. Again, many, many copies of the same gene product, genetic economy. And in red are the, is the portal that I just showed you. And now there's two enzymes. Once this packages, there's two enzymes that pump DNA into this particle. And when the DNA is being pumped into the particle, the, the scaffolding protein is released, and we end up with this very, very tightly packed DNA. It's liquid crystalline. It has 10 times the pressure of a champagne bottle inside these virus particles. And then these closure proteins are added. And this thing is like a bomb ready to go off. And when it gets to a cell surface, bam, in goes that DNA under tremendous pressure. So it's really a beautifully organized system. Now, this is what we call the procapsid. This is, this is before it's got any DNA inside. And we can do a cryo-EM reconstruction of that particle. And when we do, it comes out looking like this. It has icosahedral symmetry, and we can cut and look on the inside, and there's no DNA, as expected. Uh, it's an empty particle. But now uh, it does have this portal, and now these two enzymes come, grab DNA, and pump that DNA into the particle, burns ATP in the process, and that gives us now these full particles, and we can actually see the DNA inside of them, but when we do the reconstruction, we get a particle that looks very similar to the one that's not full, but it's not the same. And now when we cut in, we can see the layers of double-stranded DNA just packed at liquid crystalline density inside of this particle. So here's that procapsid, and on the same scale, that's the mature capsid. So the particle expands proteins change the way they interact with each other, and we have this enormous amount of DNA inside. Now, I showed you that portal before, uh, or that, the tail machine before. Now, we did a reconstruction of the entire particle, and it was a big job, uh, lots and lots of effort. But now we can look inside, and we can actually see the DNA as it is packed against the protein outer surface, and as it's packed against the portal, and we can, the first time we looked at this, I actually, I felt a little embarrassed. I felt like a peeping Tom. I felt, my word, we are getting a look at something that nobody has ever seen before, and should we really be looking at this? Uh, I've got used to it, though. Uh, anyway, uh, so this is just a little movie that illustrates the features of this particle. So here's our, our, tail, our whole tail machine, the delivery system. And uh, this is the protein shell. And uh, we can take off different uh, proteins here. There's the DNA. Very, we just took off, computationally took off the uh, capsid. And here's our portal. There's a really strong DNA uh, ring that packs right around that portal. And, uh, and now we can look at the DNA. We can cut through and look at the DNA organization inside of this particle. Uh, this is the delivery system. There's our portal that we looked at before at high resolution, and now uh, it sits in the shell of the capsid, and then we can add these other 
uh, gene products to it. So this is the, this is the finished product, and uh, uh, at the time we, we solved that in 2006, it was a big deal. Uh, we, had a, we had a really good time publishing uh, that, and, uh, um, and it, it's, I, I continue to, to, to really love this virus. Um, and then one of the nice things is, uh, actually a long time ago, geneticists had ident and, and bio biochemists had identified all of the gene products that were supposed to be in this particle. And we were able to point out every single one of those gene products and color code them. And a guy named John King from MIT, who had worked on this since the early 60s, came to Scripps. And we spent an afternoon with him looking at our structure. and. Uh, it, it was really fun to watch this guy just sort of be mesmerized by seeing where all of these proteins uh, were organized, how they were organized, and where they were located inside of this particle. And we got a little bit of uh, credit for that with a paper in Science, but this is all very, very collaborative activities. Um, this was a graduate student, Gabe Lander, that did much of the heavy lifting. Sherwood Cajuns is a guy that uh, um, provided us with all of the material. And Peter Privilege had done some cloning and, and got us the uh, portal uh, protein that, so that we could work on that. And these people run our cryo-electron microscopy facility at Scripps, Bridget Carragher and Clint Potter, and they have taken cryo-EM and turned it into a tool. It used to take years to do these reconstructions. Now we can do it in a couple weeks. So the, the, and, and, and this is a guy that figured out how to do the asymmetric reconstruction. Uh, what did I do? Uh, just direct the band and uh, hope for the best. So anyway, um, we've, been, we've been looking at, at, at this now. I, I want to zoom in on, uh, uh, on the capsid. We've been worried primarily about the, about the uh, uh, tail machine and how the DNA was delivered. But the capsid itself is extremely interesting. And a number of years ago, one of our collaborators was able to make capsids that didn't have any tails on them. Uh, it's just using an expression system. And what happened then was we could take those capsids and we could grow three-dimensional crystals and we could do crystallography and we could, point, we could see where every atom was located inside of that uh, capsid. And uh, uh, when we did that, we discovered something else that the, not only does this shell form a, a, a closed icosahedral shell, but it forms cross-links, and, and the whole protein is actually chain-linked together by covalent bonds that keep this enormous pressure from exploding. Uh, so we, we, can, we, can just, we can see how each of these subunits are linked together through these uh, um, same colored rings, and that was another very, very surprising thing. Uh, and, and when we looked at this, at the way the proteins were organized, I called it a molecular orgy because everybody was laying on top of each other. We had never seen a protein organization like that. They usually, proteins know where their boundaries are and they don't cross those boundaries. But this was, this was a, a, everybody was uh, overlapping with each other. Uh, so then we needed to understand how it could get to that state. So we did that crystal structure out here, and we've been able to get all of these different intermediate particles uh, by either crystallography or high-resolution 
cryo-EM, and we've been able to look at each of these different stages. Now, this is a really interesting particle, this ProHead 2, because that's where everybody's in the right place, but it's still a very delicate particle. So it transitions from here out to there and makes this bulletproof chain-linked particle. So we knew we had to get the structure of this ProHead before the crosslinks formed, before it became stable. And we were able to do that by crystallography, and we found a lot of interesting things about it. Uh, but the, the protein looked very similar to the way it looked in this mature particle, but there were differences. And we could then, this is the, this is the shell of the procapsid, and what we discovered is a really well-behaved protein. It knows where its boundaries are. It doesn't overlap with its neighbors. So, and this is, I, I always like to do this, uh, particularly in this audience. So the procapsid is like proteins come together hand to hand. And then what happens is those hands fold like that. And that's how you get this really stable particle. So there is a little bit of a theological bent to how viruses mature. Anyway, I always uh, think of the hand folding. And this just shows how that hand folding works. Here's the procapsid, and there's the mature capsid. And it gets bigger, and it gets thinner. And it's easy to see why. Because if your hands are like that to start with, the shell is thick. And then when you go like that, it has to expand, and then it gets thin. So it's a really simple model. Now, we have, can make a movie that shows how these proteins reorganize during this maturation process, as we call it. Now, the movie's running backwards and forwards, but in reality, this is a one-way street. This is a downhill, this is a downhill, uh, this is a downhill uh, uh, thermodynamic uh, uh, event, and actually the, the procapsid is metastable. Uh, so now we can, but we can watch how things reorganize. Here's uh, one of the regions that form hexamers, and originally they're not really hexameric, and then they form these hexamers. And uh, I love to look at how the crosslinks form in this, because the two parts that crosslink start out 40 angstroms apart, and then they have to come down. So if, if uh, we focus right here, there's one residue there, another residue there, and they come down, and then there's a third residue that catalyzes that reaction and forms the crosslink. So um, these, the, the, these this is such a precise device. Everything is perfectly positioned, and if it's not, uh, nothing happens. So we, we get to look at the atomic level of how this device is working. Now, there is another device uh, made by a man named Hoberman. Uh, it's called a Hoberman sphere. They used to be in airports, but I don't know. They must have lost their popularity or something, but I love this thing because it is actually a beautiful mechanical model for how a virus matures. If you think about each of these struts as a protein, notice that the struts are, are sort of radial in the, lower, in, the, in the smaller size particle, and then they become tangential in the larger size particle. This is exactly the motion that these subunits are undergoing during this maturation process. So, uh, we've been able to look at all of these different uh, um, particles. We've been able to watch as they move from one state to, to the next. 
uh, and we've been able to identify all of the different reorganization that is taking place and the chemistry associated with it. So these are just the different intermediates that we've been able to look at. And uh, uh, by using genetics, we can stop it at different stages along the way, and then we can do high-resolution structures as we go. So um, this is, this is the, the, what the surface looks like, a little portion of the surface of the final mature particle. So um, anyway, I have tried to give you a sense of my day-to-day -day excitement uh, associated with this. And uh, I, I, I love this quote from uh, C.K. Chesterton because uh, it, it's sort of theology at its most basic level. And uh, it is a terrible thing to feel gratitude and have no one to thank and to feel awe and to have no one to praise. Well, I don't have that problem. Uh, I, I'm, I am so delighted every day and uh, uh, because I can do the science, I can strive to understand how these things work, and I can feel the awe, and I can praise God uh, in, in that process. So again, this project was a, 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 a large effort with many, many people involved, uh, not all from Scripps. Uh, the guy that really started it is this guy, Roger Hendricks, right here. He came up with all of the genetic ways of being able to trap these intermediates and then uh, uh, the rest of us were able to use those reagents that he created. So with that, um, I will uh, thank you for your attention. And I don't know whether there's a chance for questions or not, but uh, uh, I really appreciate this opportunity. And thanks for letting me be here. How can viruses be viewed as a uh, positive part of creation? Is it part of the fall? Is it uh, um, what? What? Uh, how does it fit in? Well, I think that, that there are some extraordinary uh, um, conundrums here because it turns out that that retroviruses and HIV is a retrovirus, and if we if we were to identify probably one of the worst viruses that uh, has ever been around, it's HIV. But retroviruses are able to move large chunks of DNA from one cell to another. And in terms of evolution, retroviruses are viewed as a critical component that has allowed significant movement of Genetic, genomic information without having all of the detailed mutational uh, activities associated with it. So it, it turns out that this is really an important part of our whole creation. Um, and and uh, viruses have been around since the very first cells. Every, uh, every do domain of life is infected by a virus. Uh, and, uh, in fact, we work on viruses that infect sulfalobus, and sulfalobus lives in boiling acid. And there's the virus right there, ready to uh, take advantage of it. So I, I, I can't give a, a philosophical answer, but I can give a scientific answer. Viruses look to be a very, very important part 
of the evolutionary process, especially retroviruses. So there's a real irony here in terms of it. I mean, it's, it's a two-edged sword. Uh, so um, I, I don't know whether that answers uh, or at least provides a little bit of uh, insight into, into the role of viruses. But uh, viruses are, I don't know, maybe, maybe they were created for us to study because they're not really... They're not really, bio I mean, they're not a living system. They need a host. And yet, we can take them and we can crystallize them and we can use techniques to look at them at atomic resolution. I think we understand more about how viruses work than any other part of biology. It's, it's, a measured, it's a measured quantity. Uh, there's a guy at UCSD here in San Diego uh, named Doug Smith, and they can take these particles one particle at a time, and they can immobilize them, and they can attach those enzymes that pump DNA into the particles, and they can measure the force on one particle at a time. They can measure the force that it takes to drive that DNA in. And by measuring that force, they can co compute the pressure. Uh, and and they're, they're the strongest motors in biology. I mean, we're filled with motors uh, uh, every time we do that. We have uh, a huge number of motors, uh, no, most, mostly uh, microtubules uh, and actin and, and so forth. Those motors are very wimpy compared to the motors that pump DNA into these viruses. They're, they're enormously strong. So it's a derived, it's not a direct pressure region, but a direct pressure uh, calculation, but it's derived from the amount of force that is known to be generated by those motors to, uh, pumping it in. And that force decreases, I mean, the force increases as more and more DNA goes in. So you get these really nice uh, force uh, curves that show as a function of time. Do you think it would be possible to harness those Oh, believe me, this, this whole world of nanotechnology uh, and, and, and these bacteriophages are the ultimate nanomachines. Uh, and people all over the world are working very, very hard to be able to get these things to pump uh, in, in a, a different uh, uh, setting than what they were designed for. So I, I think there's a lot of hope that this will be adaptable into other categories. Exactly. So there's two enzymes. Actually, there's, there, there's two proteins that are involved in getting the DNA in one. And the one is a recognition protein, uh, which binds to a particular region of the DNA. And then the other is actually the enzyme that does the pumping. So there, there is a recognition event, but as you point out, it's, a, it's not uh, perfect. And, and so P22 was one of the first viruses where it was discovered that, in fact, cellular uh, components were getting co-packaged and could be transferred from one cell to another. And this, again, I think, is, is this idea of a role that viruses might 
play in the creative process because by being able to do this horizontal transfer of genetic information uh, is a very, very efficient way to uh, um, um, allow interesting things to happen in, in, in an evolutionary sense. So, um, uh, but there is a specificity and it is done by that one component associated with the packaging. Uh, well, so uh, we, we, the hottest thing that we've got going now has nothing to do with structure, which I find a little bit offensive, but uh, um, because I, I'm a structural biologist. Uh, but I have, a, I have a postdoc that came from Cambridge, England, and he said, what's inside a virus particle? I said, well, the viral genome. And he said, are you sure? And I said, I think so. And... and uh, and, and uh, he said, uh, is it okay if I look at what's inside a virus particle? And people have done this, uh, but they've done it in, in a very specific manner. Uh, they've, they've sort of, they, they use cloning techniques, and, and, and they're, they're predicting what's there, and they find what they predict. But he had this really clever idea. Uh, he calls it an agnostic analysis of the content of virus particles. And what you do is you take these virus particles, you purify them, and you treat them with ribonuclease to get rid of anything that might be sticking to them. And then you do something called deep sequencing, which is a technique that was actually uh, um, developed during, during the Human Genome Project. But what you find is that 98% of what's in that particle is, in fact, viral genome. But 2% is host, just like P22 will package uh, uh, DNA from, from its, its host in a bacteriophage, this virus infects insects. And in fact, we've now looked at viruses that infect humans. So these virus particles are also moving pieces of the genome of their host among the, 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 the hosts that they're infecting. So this is, this is what we're doing. Uh, we, we, we've just recently in, in December, we had a paper in PNAS describing this, and now we've actually carried this a, a, a step further, and we're going through what I call the downward spiral of publication. So we start with cell, uh-uh, molecular cell, uh-uh, embo journal, uh-uh. And this guy is very good-natured about all this, but uh, anyway, um, so we're, we're, we're doing that. And the other thing that we're trying to do is... Uh, um, create artificial viruses um, where we package, now that we know that this, this uh, um, type of packaging can exist, we're trying to package specific genes into virus particles that we can, can deliver. So virus particles can be very, very powerful delivery systems, and they're used that way uh, in medicine, and then they, they can be very specific. So we're trying to get in that bandwagon. Superb question, fantastic question. Uh, we, we have been able to do what they call single molecule experiments, and we've been able to 
so when you study when you study viruses, there's two ways you can you, you study them. Or maybe there's more, more than two, but there's two ways that we study them. We study them in what we call an ensemble, which is a big bunch of virus particles, and you really you're just looking at what that population of particles is doing. You don't know what any given particle is is doing, and then you can do single particle, and then you know what each individual particle is doing. And ideally, you can take your single particle results and reproduce your ensemble results, but one particle at a time. And uh, so when we watch that maturation, it takes one second for that particle to go from the procapsid state to the mature capsid state. So it's, it's a very rapid bam that, uh, that, that takes place. Now, the actual packaging of the DNA is slower. It, uh, it, it, it takes about two to three minutes for um, 40,000 base pairs to be packaged inside of that particle. And when you think about this problem, I mean, it's, it's really quite amazing because that is a very large piece of DNA, and it has to be perfectly packaged inside of there. Because anybody that's had the same experience with garden hoses that I've had know that when, when you start pulling this, well, that ejects the DNA in about 10 seconds. So 40,000 base pairs of DNA go flying into that cell, and it just has to come unspooling out of that particle uh, so efficiently. So these are just magnificent devices. No. <laughs> no, I, um, I, I have to say, I, I am a very, very firm believer uh, in uh, the, uh, um, the creative process of evolution. Um, and I, I'm, I'm very, very impressed with, you know, how we can actually see, we never know actually whether simple viruses are highly evolved or, you know, it's hard to know what direction things are, are, are going. But um, it, it just, it seems to me that, that nature has been able to um, work its way through so many of these uh, sort of roadblocks. And, uh, you know, when we look at where we're at now and we, and we do these, these detailed comparisons of proteins that are present from from the simplest bacteria to us, and they're superimposable on each other structurally. They may not be, they may not be uh, recognizable in terms of sequence, but structurally they're superimposable to within uh, an angstrom or so. And you look at these conserved folds and, 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 and so forth. So I have to say, I, I don't get into these. I, evolution is very, very important for me because I use it every single day to understand and to put the work into, con into context. Listening to these neurobiologists and so forth, I, I mean, viruses, you know, this, I mean, when, when, when we start looking at us, it just becomes, uh, I, I go into a freeze mode because I, 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 uh, I'm so overwhelmed. Um, but uh, I have... No problem whatsoever in, in uh, giving the creator uh, all of the credit for how this was all done. Um, and I, all, I, always, I always think it's much more interesting to, to build something that's self, 
organizing. And, you know, what's more interesting, if you take those pieces of the, of the little particle that my friend put together, and if you put them together yourself, or if you dump them into a, into a can and you shake the can and out comes the assembled particle. Uh, I think that's a lot more interesting than fitting together the little pieces one by one. So uh, I, I love being able to discern these processes, but uh, I, I can't address your question, but I can... Sp and, and so is, it, is there not Yeah, right. I mean, if, if you look at these delivery systems uh, for viruses, there's, there's a huge uh, similarity in, in some of these uh, uh, secretion systems that we see in, in bacteria. So it looks as though I don't, we don't know whether the virus grabbed it from the bacteria or whether the bacteria grabbed it from the virus. But, but there's absolutely uh, um, very, very similar types of, of uh structures involved and strategies in, in bacterial secretion systems and in viral delivery systems. So that's a, a, a kind of a good example that's simple that I understand. Hi, Jack. I'm Gary Albert. I had a minute memories. You know, I... Jerry and I were... Absolutely, positively. I mean, we have, we, we, we have, we have put uh, um, epitopes on the surface of plant viruses and we can target them directly to cancer cells. Uh, cancer cells generally express uh, particular proteins in large amounts on their surfaces relative to non-cancer cells, and there are recognition mo uh, motifs, and when we put those on a plant virus, we can just decorate the dickens out of these very, very specifically out of the cancer cell, in cancer cells. Uh, the problem that we have is how do we deliver what we want into those cells? So we can target We've done that over and over again, but it's been really hard to, to, to get the, the payload out of the particle and into the cell. And uh, that, that's a problem that we're, we're working on. But I'm very convinced that we're all going to love viruses within the next decade because they're going to be a solution to a huge amount of uh, disease. I, I'm, I'm very confident of that. Absolutely. <laughs> there's, 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 we, we have a select list of uh, biological agents, and viruses are among those. Uh, um, and, and, you know, any, anything that humans develop have both sides to it. And, and nature, nature has done a pretty good job of uh, um, causing havoc with viruses. Um, I, I, but I, I always like to point out that, that things like Ebola virus, which most people have heard of because it turns the inside of a human being into a liquid uh, within about 48 hours, 
those aren't the problem viruses, though, because we always know exactly where they're at, and, and we can respond to them. I mean, in a global, they're a problem for whoever's been infected, but in, in, a, in a global health. But, I mean, the, the, the terrible, terrible viruses are the HIV viruses, the type viruses that have these long periods of uh, infection without any obvious uh, uh, symptoms, and then all of a sudden the roof falls in three years later, because you don't know where that virus is. And so the, the ones that are the, the ones that are identified as the most horrendous viruses in terms of causing problems are not a big problem in terms of global health because we always know where they're at, and you can respond to that. But HIV is the perfect virus if you want to look at the dark side. <laughs> No, it's, it's, it's the immune system. And, 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 and it turns out, I mean, this is the other side, you know. I mean, this, this, this is an arms, an arms war. So you've got viruses on the one hand, and then you've got immunity on the other. And it turns out that I mean, your question, your, your question uh, was asked in a very, very uh, serious way um, about uh, 10 years ago. Why are there any bacteria? Because bacteriophage are probably the largest biomass on Earth is bacteriophage. Um, they, they've been able to, to show that the amount of bacteriophage in the ocean is uh, on the order of 10 to the 30th. I mean, that is a very big number. Uh, and, and, uh, um, but just about six or seven years ago, it was discovered that bacteria have their own immune system, which, I mean, when we think of our immune system, we think of antibodies and, and all of the things that get turned on when we get invaded with, with a, uh, a pathogen. And nobody ever thought bacteria had a, 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 an immune system, but they do, and it's a very, very effective, it can recognize foreign DNA and it digests that DNA. So, and it, it, it was just seven years ago that, that these uh, so-called CRISPR sequences were discovered. And, and so it's, every organism that has survived has its own way of being able to deal with viruses. And uh, uh, it's, it's uh, quite an quite a arms race, and uh, things keep getting... Uh, moved up and then reacted to. But I, I hope that answers your question. Basically, we all have immune, some kind of immune response if we survive. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's what vaccines are all about. So uh, um, if, if, you can, if you can generate that immune response before you become infected, um, that's the ideal. Uh, and, and that's what vaccines do for you. So uh, um, that's, that's how we stimulate that immune response prior to an actual infection. We use dead viruses or viruses that, 
that are attenuated in some way or another. But obviously things like influenza, as we know, I mean, it's a constant process. Influenza is mutating all of the time. And, uh, uh, and it moves between birds and cattle and humans. So there's an enormous uh, um, reservoir and opportunities for these things to reorganize and to become more infectious. Ultimately, I mean, the cell is a closed system. So, um, and, and, and now you're, you're generating energy landscapes. And, and uh, um, we, I can't resist telling the, saying this because um, uh, we discovered it about two years ago. Uh, that procapsid is a metastable particle. That means that it is just, it gives off energy when it matures. And the question was, where does that energy come from? How can it be metastable? And we discovered, you know, these scaffolding proteins that I, uh, that I uh, talked about at the beginning. Well, the scaffolding proteins bind to the capsid proteins and guide the assembly, but they also distort them. And that distortion gets trapped in that pro-capsid structure. And so that's where the energy comes from. So it's like this, the proteins look like that in the procapsid, and then they go like that in the, in the mature capsid. So there's all of these amazingly subtle ways of generating uh, energy landscapes. And, and we feel very satisfied by doing this with two proteins. Well, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Good. Um, the definition of life has changed a lot since I was in high school, but I don't even know exactly how it's changed. So what, what is it about viruses that make them, in your mind, not alive? What's the difference between something that's alive right. and Okay. Well, something that's alive has to be able to reproduce on its own. Um, and and uh, uh, I mean, there are a, a set of criteria, but the virus can do nothing on its own, uh, when, and, which is why it's so great for biophysicists, because when we purify it from its host, it's just another macromolecule. And we can use all of the techniques that we use to study isolated proteins to study viruses. So away from its host, it's just a macromolecule. It does nothing. But as soon as you bring it into the environment of the host, where it can now start grabbing host machinery then it can replicate itself very, very efficiently, often better than what the host can replicate. So um, it, it, in my way of thinking, that's the definition. I mean, if I can put it in a test tube and nothing happens, uh, then um, I would not call it a living system. Whereas, obviously, if we take bacteria and we put it, bacteria are replicating and multiplying all of the time. But the virus does nothing uh, by itself. Oh, yeah, I mean, there's parasites and so forth, uh, but the virus is an obligate parasite. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of living systems that are enhanced by having a synergistic partner, 
Uh, but without the synergistic partner, it can still exist. It's still, I mean, it can still multiply. So it gets, it, its lifestyle gets dramatically enhanced and improved in the presence of a synergistic host. But um, the virus can't do anything without its host. It is just there. Ah, oh, good. Okay. <laughs> I have this light right here. <laughs> I, for, I, I, I believe this is God's creation. And, and, and you know, I, I, like, I like to, you know, we talk about self-assembling systems and how much, how interesting that is. I mean, I look at the universe uh, and, and, uh, uh, and I think to myself, what a very, very clever uh, creation this was because all of the rules were encapsulated at that moment of creation of the universe. And, and the physics was defined at that point in time. And, and then the physics allows all of these really interesting things to happen with the, the I think, the, the, the highest point being us. But uh, Jennifer, uh, um, I mean, if you study active galaxies, if you study different aspects of cosmology, you, you see the physics at, at, at such a spectacularly beautiful uh, uh, level, uh, and it's all encoded at that moment of creation. Um, I, I, I just, I, I, I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I mean, viruses are fantastic uh, theft, thieves. Uh, if you look at a virus like herpes virus, herpes virus has stolen so many human cellular uh, uh, genome or genes that it has then put into its own usefulness to fool the cell in one way or another. Uh, and and uh, so normally cells, when they detect that they've been infected by a virus, they go through something called apoptosis, which is they die. Well, uh, herpes virus has a protein that the cell uses to say, no, no, don't die, uh, keep going. <laughs> and, and it took that from a cell. I mean, you can look at the structure and you can see it. So, I mean, viruses are grabbing things from hosts all the time to make themselves more, more effective. Oh, I, I mean, that's bad wording.
Well, it, it, I mean, modelers come up with a lot of what's called coarse-grained descriptions of this. And, and the DNA is treated as a, essentially a tube that has charge on it uh, because D, DNA is negatively charged. And so you have this electrostatic repulsion that is adding dramatically to this pressure that is measured by seeing how much force it takes to put it into the particle. Um, and so the, the modelers uh, sort of dumb this down, and, you know, you can think of it as a fire hose with charge on it. And, and uh, you know, if you're trying to put that into a bucket or something, I mean, that's the, that's the sort of modeling that they do. I mean, much, much more sophisticated. Uh, and, uh, uh, and, and, and if you're driving that in with some kind of a, of a pump, um, you will then generate pressure inside of that bucket and remember all of the, you, you have this shell this this whole this large shell and then you just have this very small little opening where the dna is being pumped in so you have almost a uniform container uh at, that is holding that uh that dna and and uh, and then what's really neat is you quickly have to put these other proteins onto it to keep the dna from flying right back out again <laughs> so uh uh, that's a pretty pretty good trick too. I, I I don't think I answered your question, but it would just be. I mean, you can scale it up in, into into uh, the our, our scales, and I think there would be models that that would describe it. Okay. Good.